you wouldn't mind turning to uh, First Chronicles, uh, we're going to be starting a series in Chronicles today. So you might have noticed in the bulletin, um, it says First Chronicles chapters 1 to 9. Um, so we're going to take the time to read all 957 names in this genealogy today. That'll be the message for today. Um, no, just kidding. You could do that this afternoon. The bills aren't playing, so you'll have some time to do some light reading. Um, but if you want to just kind of find your place, First Chronicles, we're going to be reading a couple uh, different passages today and kind of skipping around. So if you just want to kind of hold your place there, that would be awesome. Um, the other day, I went with some friends to Bonds Lake, and we were doing some hiking. And uh, I had been to Bonds Lake a number of times before, but there was this one particular trail that we found ourselves on that I had never been to before. Um, so it's, you know, if you've ever been to Bonds Lake, it's a beautiful, beautiful park, um, just really nice place to go, and it's quiet and, and just a nice place to walk. But as we were walking on this path, we found some things that were kind of interesting. So I noticed there was a bunch of pine trees, and as I looked a little bit closer, I saw that they were actually in rows, um, they were just kind of in rows going all the way, you know, each way going down the rows. Um, and it was clear they weren't natural. There must have been some kind of a Christmas tree farm or some, or some kind of nursery there at one point because they were just lined up in rows. So we kept walking, and uh, then we saw these pears, little tiny pears. There was this big pear tree. It's all overgrown, but it has just these little tiny pears, two little tiny pears on it. So we just kind of go over and start looking at them, and then we notice that there's more pear trees, and they're also in a row, and they're all overgrown and all, you know, little tiny pears, but you see that at one time this used to be an orchard. And I started thinking, like, what did this used to look like? You know, at this point it's kind of overgrown and, you know, kind of nature has kind of taken over, but what did it used to look like when it was a Christmas tree farm, nursery, and orchard? I thought about, like, who used to live here? Did they have a family? Were they incredibly wealthy to have this ginormous property? And I was just kind of thinking about those things. And now, imagine that you got a call this afternoon from your lawyer, and your lawyer says, I just wanted to let you know you've inherited some property. You've inherited that property at Bonds Lake. Your great-great-grandparents owned that property, and... Uh, there's no other living relatives, and so it's been uh, deeded to you. Now, that would probably be pretty exciting. It's a really nice piece of property, but you'd probably go there, and you'd think to yourself, where do I start? I mean, it's all overgrown. I mean, it once was a really nice residence, apparently, but what do you, where do you start? Then imagine you get a, a phone call from uh, the town historian, and the historian says, Hey, I just, I just realized you inherited this property, and I have some information that I'd like to show you. And so you go there excited to hear more about this property you've just inherited. And, and the town historian brings out this family tree and shows this diagram of, of who used to own it and, and shows the family tree down to you, shows you pictures of what the orchard used to look like, shows you pictures of the Christmas tree farm and families going to get the Christmas trees. And then you have a vision of what it was once was, and so now you start to get a vision of what it could be for you. 
I think that's kind of what is happening in the book of Chronicles. So in the book of Chronicles, uh, during the, this time, Israel uh, was just kind of coming out of exile. And, and by the way, when we're talking about First and Second Chronicles, there's every indication that they were uh, at one time one book. Uh, so the author intended them to be together. But we separate them. It's just a little bit easier because it's longer. Uh, but Israel during this time uh, had been taken into exile. The Babylonians had taken the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. Uh, and then after they were taken into exile in Babylon, the Persians came and took over the Babylonians. After the Persians took over the Babylonians, this king named Cyrus, uh, he was kind of gracious to the Israelites. He said, well, we're still going to rule over you but we're going to allow you to go back to your homeland, to Israel, and you're going to be able to rebuild your temple. And so after the Persians take over, the Israelites start going back to Israel and start to rebuild what once was. And so they rebuilt the temple, or were in the process of rebuilding that. But I think what's happening here is that they were kind of in danger of losing their identity, of forgetting who they were. And so as we look at the book of First Chronicles, it's a history book. It shares a lot about things that happened in Israel, but it's more than that. I think the author is trying to show the Israelites who they are. He's trying to show kind of their, their lineage, and from that, they can kind of see where they need to go as a people. And so the first thing we see in, in the book of First Chronicles is this genealogy. It's a really long genealogy, one of the longest in the Bible, chapters 1 to 9. Lots and lots of different names. It's one of those passages that we, you know, if we're doing kind of a daily Bible reading, we tend to want to just skip over this passage because it's just so many different names. Um, and there's a lot in there, but I think that there's a lot of relevance to us. And the way that the author kind of forms these genealogy, I think there's a lot we can learn from this. And there's a lot we can apply to our lives. And there's really some profound things that happen in this genealogy that he shares. Um, so again, we're going to read a couple different portions. So if you turn your Bible to chapter 1, we'll read 1 to 16 to start. It says, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagarmah. The sons of Javan, Elijah, Tarshish, Ketim, and Rodanim. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Ramah, and Saptica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lahamim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kaluhim, from, the from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtrim. Canaan fathered Sidon. His firstborn, and Hath and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gerishites, the Hiphites, the Arachites, the Sinites, the Arvites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. So why do I read that first part of this genealogy? I think there's something really interesting here. As we think about the genealogy and kind of the family tree of Israel, where does Israel really start? Um, we would think Israel starts with Abraham. Because God came to Abraham, he was living... Uh, in this foreign land, and God came to him and made these promises to him, I'm going to make, make you a great nation. Remember, he doesn't have any children at this point, but he makes these promises to Abraham, says, I'm going to make you your name great, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So if we think about kind of a history of Israel, we would think it would start at Abraham, 
rather than with Adam. But we see the author of Chronicles goes all the way back to the beginning of, of, of history, beginning of humanity, starts with Adam. Now, why does he do that? I think there's a couple reasons. I think there's a couple things that this can show us. And the first thing I think it shows us is that God had a plan before you. God had a plan before you. God's plan for Israel didn't start with Abraham. Even at the beginning of history, before Adam and Eve fell, before they sinned against God, God knew that they were going to sin. And God knew he was going to initiate this plan of redemption and he was going to use Israel as his light to the nations. And so even before Abraham existed, even before their history existed, God was at work and God was moving. Sometimes I think we get caught up with this question of, what does God want me to do? And we kind of think about finding God's will as if we need to kind of manufacture a purpose for ourselves. But we don't need to find God's will as much as we need to discover God's will. Discover what God has for us. God has a plan for each and every one of us. And so we have these questions, what is God have for me as a student? What does God have for me as a mom or dad trying to provide for my family? Uh, what does God have for me as a single adult? Or what does God have for me in, in a retirement? And uh, these are good questions to ask, but these aren't questions that should lead us to fear and anxiety. They should lead us to hope and expectation. Because we don't need to find our purpose. We don't need to manufacture our purpose. God has been arranging the events in your life for a specific purpose. God has been working before you were even on this planet. And God has a purpose. He has every, every moment of our life scripted out. And so we need to rely on him. I think about, you know, Christmas season is starting to kick off already, even though it's not even October yet. But you think about Christmas, and um, you ever seen the advent calendars where um, they'll have like little chocolates or cheeses or wines or my son had a little uh, cars one. It had like a little piece of like a cars track. And uh, each day of December you open up a new one. And I think that's kind of like what it is to follow after God's will. It's like each step we kind of open up the next door. And, and honestly sometimes you know you open up that door. Is this something you don't really like? Sometimes it's something you like but it's, it's this road of discovery, discovering what God has for us. And, and it's not even always the same. It's not like God has one purpose in mind for each person. You know, depending on our life situation, God, that kind of could change. You know, the circumstances that God has put us in. And so God has a plan even before we were born, before we were in the situation that we're in. He has a plan, and, and our job as believers is to follow after him and discover what that plan is. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 139, 13 and 19. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, uh, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. God has a plan for each and every one of us, and that plan started even before we were born. Uh, there's a man by the name of Oz Guinness, and uh, early in his life, he really wanted to follow after the Lord, was a strong believer, and he felt like the only way that he could do that was by becoming a missionary or a pastor. And so he listened to some mentors in his life and started, uh, he became a pastor of a well-known church. 
but he was miserable. He just hated it. And the reason was because it wasn't in line with the purpose God had for him. It was a good thing, but wasn't in line with what God had for him. He describes how God changed his heart and kind of started to reveal to him what his true purpose was. He describes it this way. He said, I had just had my car filled up with gas and enjoyed a marvelously rich conversation with the pump attendant. And of course, this was before uh, credit card pumps. As I turned on the key and the engine to my car roared to life, a thought suddenly hit me with the force of an avalanche. This man was the first person I had spoken to in a week who was not a church member. I was in danger of being drawn into a religious ghetto. Ten minutes of conversation with a friendly gas pump attendant on a beautiful spring evening in England, and I knew once and for all I was not cut out to work full-time in a church. Instead, as Guinness continued to pray and seek God's guidance, he discovered that God was calling him to work in the world so he could use his gifts and build relationships with people who didn't know Christ. God changed his perspective. He thought the only way that he could serve God was becoming a pastor or a missionary, and God showed him, I've designed you for something different. And he's gone on to write, he wrote a number of books and has been able to help many, many people from a different platform. And so God has a purpose for each and every one of us, and that purpose started before even we were born. And our job is to obey him, to follow him each and every day, and, and kind of to discern what is God leading me to do. In, in the circumstances that he's brought me in, in, in the moment that I have now, what, how can I obey God? Uh, the Jesuit priest, uh, John Powell, used to have a sign over his mirror that he'd see each morning to be a reminder to him, and he's, it said this, What have you got going on today, God? I'd like to be a part of it. Thanks for loving me. And so as we see this genealogy, it's a simple thing, but he starts with the beginning of time. That God has a plan from the beginning. I think there's a second thing this shows us, and that is that the story of humanity, or the story of God's people is the story of humanity. As we look at Israel's history, Israel kind of had this kind of broken relationship and kind of perspective with the nations around them. And they kind of oscillate from two different extremes. On the one hand, they kind of exclude the nations around them, and they're just kind of, you know, kind of this separatist group who are kind of, you know, spiritually kind of elitist, don't let anyone kind of come close to God, and they kind of prevent everyone from coming to God. So they, in one sense, they're like that. And then on the other hand, in other instances, they kind of just become like the other nation. They intermarry with, with other nations. They take their gods, and, and they, they have kind of no corporate spiritual identity. And so they kind of go from those two poles. And uh, I think during the time that Chronicles was written, I think the people of God need a reminder of who they're called to be. Uh, on the one hand, they're called to be separate. They're called to be holy. Uh, out of all the nations in the world, God chose to reveal his, his law to Israel. And so God called them to be holy, to be separate. They weren't to take on the, the abominable practices of the nations who were doing things like child sacrifices and, and doing these wicked things. So they're to be holy and they're to be separate. But they're also to be for the world. That God chose Israel out of all the nations, not just so that they would be the separatist group, but that so that they would be a light to the world. That Israel would be kind of the prototype, so to speak, of the kingdom of God. That the nations would see the glory of God through Israel. Now, of course, they, they failed in that purpose. They often were led astray, but that's what God was calling them to do. They were to be separate, but they were also to be for the nations. 
And so the author goes back to Adam, and I think that's significant because it shows that the people, the story of the people of God just doesn't start with Abraham. It doesn't start when God called him. It starts all the way back in creation. And we see that God has a purpose for not just Israel, but for the whole world, that God is, is intending to use Israel as a light to the nations. So Israel's story is humanity's story. Uh, another passage I'd like to look at, if you looked at uh, verses, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, it says this, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the people of Israel. Bala, the son of Bor, the name of his city being uh, Dinhambah, Bala died and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died and Husham of the land of the Temites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Maskerta reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rahamoth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shoal died, and Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan died, and Hadad reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pi, and his wife's name was Mehedabah, the daughter of Merid, the daughter of Mezebah, and Hadad died. So here in, this, in these verses, um, the author of Chronicles is recounting kind of the history of some of the non-Israelite kings, the kings of Edom. Now, if you look at throughout the genealogy, what's interesting is you see, um, as he's talking about the Israelites and kind of, uh, especially in the chapter we just read in chapter 1, talks about the sons of so-and-so, the sons of so-and-so, and it's all implied in that. Of course, Adam is dead at, these point, at this point. All of these people are dead, but the author doesn't say that. But then when you get to these, these non-Israelite kings, he says they died. He says Bala died, Jobab died, Husham died, Hadad died, Samla died, Shaul died, Balhanan died, Hadad died. All the kings of the nations died. So why is that significant? I think one possible reason why that is significant is because, again, Israel at this point, when Chronicles is being written, is, is kind of right at the, kind of at the end of exile. They're allowed to go back to Israel, but they still have foreign powers that are over them, foreign powers that are controlling them, telling what, them what they can do, what they can't do. And so there might be a subtle hint here that the author provides that one day the kings of the nations are going to be gone. One day the kings of the nations are, are going to be no more. And it looks forward to a time when Jesus, the king of kings, will come. And when the king of kings comes, he will uh, form, in a sense, a new Israel. Where the Gentiles, non-Jews, will be grafted into the people of God. And so it looks forward to a time when the, the people of God, the, 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 the story of the people of God becomes the story of history. And so I think it's, it's significant that he tells these Israelites that it's not just your story, it's humanity's story. And one day God is going to call people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And that's what he's done through Christ. And as believers, we think about this, and, and I think the same thing is true for us as believers. God's, this, the story of God's people is a story of humanity. On the one hand, God calls us to be holy. He calls us to be separate, not like those around us. He gives us commands in his word, ways that we're to be different, we're to take on the image of Christ, to love those around us, to live lives of holiness. But we're also for the world. 
He gives us this great commission where he calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he calls us to be holy, but we also exist for the world. It's not about us. It's not about our group and and our uh, kind of having this separatist mindset. It's about God using us to reach those around us with his love. In his book, uh, The Word and the Power Church, Doug Bannister writes this. He says, The spring of 1940 found Hitler's panzer divisions mopping up French troops and preparing for a siege of Great Britain. The Dutch had already surrendered, and as had the Belgians. The British army foundered on the coast of France in the channel port of Dunkirk. Nearly a quarter million young British soldiers and over 100,000 Allied troops faced capture or death. The Furs troops, only a few miles away in the hills of France, closed in on an easy kill. The Royal Navy had enough ships to save uh, barely 17,000 men, and the House of Commons was told to brace itself for hard and heavy tidings. Then while a despairing world watched with fading hope, a bizarre fleet of ships appeared on the horizon of the English Channel. Trawlers, tugs, fishing sloops, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure craft, an island ferry named Gracie Fields, and even the America's Cup Challenger Endeavor, all manned by civilian sailors, sped to the rescue. The ragtag armada eventually rescued 338,682 men, returned them home to the shores of England as pilots from the Royal Air Force jockeyed with the German Luftwaffe in the skies above the channel. It was one of the most remarkable naval operations in history. I think in a a similar way, the church is kind of like God's ragtag army, called to rescue those around us. And so our story is not just about us getting together and growing close to God. We exist for the world, to be the hands and feet of Christ to those around us. So that's the second thing I think this, this passage shows us. The story of the people of God is the story of humanity. And there's something else that's significant. If you turn your Bible to chapter 5, uh, verses 11 to 17. It says, The sons of Gad lived over against them in the land of Bashan as far as Salica. Joel, the chief, Shepham the second, Janai, and Shaphat and Bashan, and, the kins, and the, uh, the kinsmen, their kinsmen according to their father's houses, Michael, Meshulam, Sheba, Jerai, Jachan, Zia, and Eber, seven. These were the sons of Abihel, the sons of Hurai, the sons of Jerosh, son of Gilead, son of Michael, son of Jeshai, son of Jodo, son of Buz, Ahi, the son of Abdiel, son of Guni, was chief in their father's houses. And they lived in Gilead and Basham and its towns and all the pasture lands of Sharon to their, to their limits. All these were recorded in genealogies in the days of Jotham, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, king of Judah. So if you think about these genealogies, generally history is kind of written for the, from the perspective of victors. And when we look at genealogies, especially in the scriptures, oftentimes genealogies kind of show the important people. For example, if you look at the book of Matthew, uh, the, Matthew is trying to kind of document the the lineage of Christ. And so it's a very selective, very limited genealogy. He just kind of hits on kind of the important people. I think he starts with Abraham in the book of Matthew, and it's only like one chapter, really condensed. And that's often how genealogies do, are, are, are kind of written. They're written from the perspective of important people. History, you know, is about important people. 
You know, you think about, you know, taking a history class in school. Um, we probably never heard about our grandparents or great-grandparents in history class because they're important to us, but on the world's stage, they're not that important. Now, you think about this passage, and you think about what was important to the people of God. You think about the tribe of Judah and uh, how David and, and Christ would come from the line of Judah. You think about the tribe of Levi and how the, the priests come from Levi. Those were kind of the important groups. You think about Abraham, you think about David, all these important people. But the author also includes some people who are relatively kind of insignificant. The Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, many others. And I think this shows us that all of God's people are important. Each and every one of us are important. He could have just kind of focused on the, the, the most important people in Israel's history. But he shows about, he tells about all of these different tribes to show it doesn't matter what tribe you are, you're a part of the people of God and your story is important. Now we live in a world of 8 billion people or so and kind of the collective often trumps the individual. And oftentimes we don't value individuals like we should. And in the midst of that environment, I believe that God says your story matters. In a world of billions of people, God sees each and every one of us and tells us that we're significant. Sadly or happily, depending on how you look at it, soon there'll be snow on the ground. And uh, we think about that, and uh, most of us kind of look at that with dread and kind of are not looking forward to that. Some of us are, you know, kind of look forward to the beauty of that. But probably not as much as this man by the name of Snowflake Bentley. Uh, Wilson Snowflake Bentley uh, was a farmer. He was uh, born in 1865, and he just couldn't get enough of snowflakes. Every time it would snow, he would go out and take these really cold slides and then look at them under a microscope, and he would take pictures of them, and he was just enamored with snowflakes. Um, he, in, his, in his life, he took pictures of over 5,000 snowflakes, and he had notes about each and every snowflake. And um, he just had this incredible joy for snowflakes. He talked about in his journal about a journal about feasting on their beauty. Uh, he noted number 785 is so rarely beautiful. Each and every snowflake had value to him. And the same thing is true with our God. God cares about each and every one of us. Whether it's a relatively insignificant tribe or a tribe that did incredible things. He cares about each and every one of us. Uh, we see that in, in, in the teachings of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, he talks about, Jesus talks about God searching for one sheep that's lost. Searching for co one coin that's lost. Searching for one son who, who is lost and needs to be found. He cares about each and every one of us. And each and every one of us have a purpose. So again, we look at this passage, this genealogy, and I think it shows us a few things. It tells us that God had a plan before us, that even before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. He knew what he was going to do. He knew his story of redemption. He knew the circumstances you and I would find ourselves in, that the story of God's people is the story of humanity. We don't exist just for ourselves. We exist for the world, and also that each and every one of us are important. So how do we sum this up? We live in, in times of kind of uncertainty 
division and brokenness. And it's kind of not too far removed from the story, the kind of the situation that the Israelites found themselves in. They're broken. They're kind of lost. I mean, they have some measure of freedom. They can rebuild their temple. They can kind of regenerate their society. But it's not what it once was. Their culture is broken. And in that context, I think it, this passage shows us that in moments of uncertainty, division, and brokenness, we need to remember our history in order to be reminded of our purpose and value. We need to remember our history, history in order to be reminded of our purpose and value. Philip Shaft puts it this way, How shall we labor with any effect to build up the church if we have no thorough knowledge of our history? or fail to ap- apprehend it from the point of, proper point of observation. History uh, is and must ever continue to be next to God's word, the rightest foundation of wisdom, and the surest guide to all successful practical activity. So what does it mean to remember our history? First of all, we look at the writings of Scripture and see kind of the history of the record of God and being faithful to his people. And, and that's what we will see in the book of Chronicles. That's what we see throughout the whole Bible is that even when God's people fail him, even when God's people wander astray, he's faithful to them. And so we can look at the scripture as kind of our guide for that. We can look at uh, Christians who have maybe passed away, Christians of old, and, and read their biographies and read their stories and, and look at the ways that God was faithful to them, faithful to them even to the end. Uh, we can hear stories of other people in our life who God has changed and God has been faithful to. Uh, we can remember the story of humanity, how we were all sinners. We were all headed for an eternity separated from God, all fallen short of the glory of God, and how God initiated this rescue mission, that he would send his son to the earth to die on the cross for us and to rise again so that we could have eternal life. And so we can remember our history in that sense. We can also remember what God has done for us personally. We're going to remember the times in our life where maybe we were kind of down and out. We didn't have anyone else to turn to and how God was with us and faithful to us. We can remember the depths from which he brought us from. We remember the sin which he rescued us from. How he took us from the pit and put our feet on solid ground. We remember who we were and remember how God has changed us and transformed us. And so we, as we remember our history, remember who God has made us to be, what God has done in our life, what God has done in, in the history of humanity and being faithful to his people, I think it starts to give us a sense of purpose and a sense of value in our lives. So there's a dish I'd like to show you. It should be on the screen here. And uh, it's kind of a cool-looking dish, but not that fancy. I mean, if it was at a garage sale, I wouldn't buy it necessarily. And what would you think? Maybe, maybe a dollar for something like that, a garage sale. Um, but this dish is actually worth $37.28 million. Um, sold in an auction after a 20-minute bidding war a few years ago. And it's a very expensive item. Not something you'd sell at a garage sale for a dollar. But you look at it, and it's... Not doesn't look all that spectacular. doesn't look like it would be worth millions of dollars. The reason we don't realize is because we don't know its history. When we hear, realize its history, uh, we find that it was, it's over 900 years old, even though it's only 5.125 inches, but it was listed as highly important, extremely rare. And the reason it's so rare 
is that um, the, it was called the Rue Guignon Ware. Uh, and they were known for their intense blue-green glaze and ice crackle pattern, as you can see on the screen. And they were extremely rare because the kiln in China's central Hainan pro, uh, province had a brief production run of only about two decades. So in order to realize the value, the purpose, you need to know the history. I think the same thing is true for us. In order to realize our value, realize our purpose, we need to know our history. We need to know what God has done for us. We need to know where we've come from. We need to know God's intentions for us. And so in moments of uncertainty, division, and brokenness, we need to be reminded of our history. We need to remember our history in order to be reminded of our purpose and value. How does this work out practically? I think the psalmist kind of fleshes this out, what it looks like. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm chapter 77 is dealing with a really difficult uh, experience. Uh, he's depressed, kind of almost driven to despair. He feels kind of hopeless, and he's just kind of pouring out his heart to God. And then there's a moment where he kind of shifts that perspective. And even though he's enduring some terrible things, he starts to remember his history. And remember the work of God in his life. So I'll close with this. He says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work. Meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your, people, with your arm redeemed your people the children of Jacob and Joseph. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can see your faithfulness from generation to generation. We thank you that you're a God who is in charge, a God who has a plan, that we don't have to find our purpose. We just have to discover the purpose that you have for us. And as we walk in obedience with you each and every day, we know that you'll reveal those purposes to us. Lord, help us never to forget our purpose, that we're called to be holy and separate, but we're also called to be for the world, to reach out to those around us with the love of Christ. Help us never to forget the fact that we're valuable to you, that you sent your only son to die on the cross so that we could have life. Lord, help us to remember our history. Remember what you've done for us. Remember where you've brought us from. And as we remember your works of old, may it be an encouragement and a reminder to us that we're valuable and that we have purpose in your eyes. In Christ's name I pray, amen.